Good morning. Let's begin class with prayer this morning. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we ask that you join us today, that your spirit will be with us as we study your word. We, we ask for enlightenment of our minds, but more than just a, a knowledge of who you are, we ask for an experience with you, that you will come into our hearts and transform us to be like you. We pray in your holy name. Amen. Uh, we're doing lesson number seven in our quarterly major lessons from Minor Prophets, and the title this week is God's Special People, Micah. And if you look at the memory verse, it's, it's uh, got uh, Micah 6, 8, but I want to give Micah 6, 6 through 8. So let's give two more verses there and look at that. It says, With what shall I come before the Lord and bow down before the exalted God? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings and calves a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams, with ten thousands rivers of oil? Shall I offer my firstborn for the trans- my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? He has showed you, O oh man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? To act justly, and to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. As you think about this text, what, what comes to mind? Does anything strike you as you think about this text? Do you remember last week we asked the question, we, we talked about Nineveh last week. And we saw that Nineveh was, uh, had, a, had a warning message given. They repented, and God forgave them. And we asked the question, how was God able to forgive the Ninevites when they didn't bring any animal sacrifices? They didn't worship at the temple. When they didn't have their sins confessed on a lamb and the blood taken into the sanctuary, how was it possible for him to forgive their sins without any of that stuff? And does the text today that we just read give insight or add to that question? With what shall I come before the Lord? And bow down with the exalted God. Shall I bring burnt offerings and calves? Shall I bring please with a thousand rams, ten thousand rivers of oil? He has shown you, oh man, what is good. What he requires of you. What does he require? He requires sacrificial animals. Is that what it says? No. No. He, yes, it, to, to, to act justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. Did any of the ritualistic activity ever, at any time in human history, provide remedy for sin. You know, you, know the, the, you guys are radicals. You know, there's a large body of Christianity that believes in the Old Testament that the animal sacrifices were necessary for salvation. What would it mean if sacrificing of animals actually did provide a solution for sin. What would that mean? It, it's not true. You're right. It, it, it didn't ever have any remedy for sin. It was only teaching. But, but what, what if it did? What would it mean? Christ didn't need to die. Number, number one, Christ's death was superfluous. It wasn't really necessary. We could be saved without it. That's number one it would mean. What else? We could accomplish our own salvation by catching an animal and killing it. It's in our hands. We can do it. And if the animal sacrifice actually resulted in salvation, then what do you think the purpose of the animal sacrifice would be? What would it be accomplishing? Really? <laughs> Appeasement. That's what it would be doing. Animal sacrifices would be, if it actually provided that, would be accomplishing appeasement. Thus, if one promotes the idea that animal sacrifices are necessary for salvation, one is promoting paganism. Because that's what paganism is. Okay? 
Who is that? Y'all hear, it, for those online right now, we're hearing some type of like a, an alarm going off somewhere. It's not in this building, though, is it? No, good. Okay. Um, so. It's somebody's car. Okay. It's a weather alert. That's what it is. Okay. So what is the purpose of sacrificial, what is the purpose of the sacrificial system? What is it, if it's not going to provide salvation, if, if it's not necessary, we saw the Ninevites got for, forgiven, we see Micah, he's, 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 this is not what the Lord requires, the Lord requires act justly, love mercy, walk humbly with your God. So if it's not a requirement for salvation, what was his purpose? Object lesson. Object lesson, to teach the plan of salvation, act it out, a theater, a mini theater where, where there's a drama being played and we can learn through symbols. How about, in addition, also, to make one sick with sin? In other words, uh, sin, sin. If, if, you've got, if you've sinned in your life, you've done something, and the system now has you bring the little lamb that you've raised since it was born, and you've protected it from the lion, and you've petted it when it was sick, and all these things, and now you've got to confess your sin, and you've got to cut its throat. Think about doing that with your pet dog or your pet cat. Do you think it would make you sick? This is one of the reasons, I think, why that God did this. He wanted them to get a visceral, not just a cognitive, he wanted a cognitive lesson, he wanted them to think about the meaning, all that's true, but he also wanted them to react viscerally. This is disgusting. This is horrible. I never want to have this happen again. Never want it. And he wanted there to be a direct connection between deviating from God's design, sin, and destruction, death, pain, suffering. They're connected. So what is, yes? If, if it makes us feel that way, just imagine how it must make God feel. Just yeah. Animals killed. He, he said if it makes us feel that way, imagine how it made God feel. Absolutely. And, and what, what happened over the course of time? Did they become callous? And they could kill thousands of animals and think that God really liked to see all that blood flow. But we read at the end of Jonah last week, the very last verse in the book of Jonah. And the animals. Yes. He was concerned not just all the, all the children who weren't old enough to tell their left from the right, but he was concerned about all the animals. He didn't like to see animals killed. No. So what is God saying through Micah that he wants from his and of his people? What does he want? Righteousness, change of heart. Yeah, so any other, any other Bible text, if this is just one text, any other Bible text you can throw in to support this idea that what he wants is not sacrifice, what he wants is transformation of the person. Any other text? John 3.3, 3. speaking to Nicodemus, Jesus. Tell you the truth, no one can see the kingdom of God unless... Born again. Born again. That's, that's a famous one. Deuteronomy 36. The Lord your God will circumcise your hearts and the hearts of your descendants so that you may love him with all your heart and all your soul and live. Did you know that was in Deuteronomy? A lot of people think that love message, that transforming of the heart message, well, that, that's part of something in the New Testament. The Old Testament's a rigid set of rules and laws that you have to obey. Look, Deuteronomy. God's going to do what? Circumcise your heart so you may love him. You may love him. Or Psalms 51. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. What's the focus there? Legal transaction and record books or transformation of the inner man. 
or Ezekiel. I love this one in Ezekiel. Ezekiel 36, 22 through 27. It's, it's profound. It's got implications. Uh, notice, uh, notice the tension between God's people and, and what God is doing. Notice what's happening when we act in certain ways. It's, it's profound. Therefore, say to the house of Israel, this is what the sovereign Lord says. It is not for your sake, O house of Israel, that I am going to do these things, but for the sake of my holy name, which you have profaned among the nations where you have gone. Before I, before I go on, how do you think they profane the name of God among the nations? By misrepresenting him how? But how? What were they doing? They were not, being, not even being kind to one another. They were oppressing the poor and the widows and not taking care of them. They were just being, being selfish. Exactly. Claiming that they're representing the, the living God, the creator of heaven and earth, and, and then acting in ways that are contrary to his, his design, his character, his methods, misrepresented. So keep going. Which you have profaned, profaned among the nations. I will show the holiness of my great name, which has become profaned among the nations, the name you have profaned among them. Then the nations will know that I am the Lord, declares the sovereign, when I show myself holy through you before their eyes. How is he going to show himself holy? through these people who have been profaning, profaning his name. For I will take you out of the nations. I will gather you from all countries. Wait a minute, from all the countries of the world. Is this just genetic descendants he's talking about now? No. no. This is much broader. This is worldwide. Take you from all the countries and bring you back into your own land. I will sprinkle clean water on you and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your impurities and from all your idols I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. I will remove from you the heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit in you and move you to follow my decrees and be careful to keep my laws. Wow, isn't that, isn't that profound? What's the emphasis? What's being described here? Healing. Healing, exactly. Healing, regeneration, recreation. You don't find this, uh, this, this legal monster that has crept into the minds of, of Christians around the world. And then uh, out of Desire of Ages 762, because it asks the question in our, in our memory text, what does the Lord require of you? And it gave an answer. To act justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. Listen to this out of Desire of Ages 762. The law requires... Now, you all know, because you've heard this, I've, I've used it many times. But before I go on, traditionally, if I were to say to many Christians, what does the law require? Obedience? Perfection, conformity? How about the broken law? Punishment, right? The law requires, yes, justice. Listen to this. The law requires righteousness, a righteous life a perfect character. This man has not to give. He cannot meet the claims of God's holy law, but Christ, coming to earth as a man, lived a holy life and developed a perfect character. These he offers as a free gift to all who will receive them. His life stands for the life of men. They have remission of sins that are passed through the forbearance of God. Notice, not through a payment. They have remission of sins that passed because Christ paid the legal penalty and his blood stands in their record books in heaven. No. Through the forbearance of God. More than this, Christ imbues men with the attributes of God. He builds up the human character after the similitude of the divine, a goodly fabric of spiritual strength and beauty. Thus, the very righteousness of the law is fulfilled in the believer in Christ. God can be just and the justifier of him who believes in him. 
Notice what's happening. It's the same thing that you find in Micah. The law requires righteousness, a righteous life. How do we get that righteous life? Pardon? The indwelling Christ. The indwelling Christ. This is exactly right. So all these passages, as I've, as I've read the, the passages of Scripture, creating a clean heart, being reborn, being re- all these passages of Scripture, including the Micah text, Desire of Ages, what law do you hear being emphasized? The law of love. A design protocol upon which life is built. That's exactly right. First paragraph. It says, the prophet Micah ministered in one of the darkest periods of Israel's history. The country long had been divided into two kingdoms. Finally, Assyria put an end to the northern kingdom, and Micah could see evil and violence creeping into Judah in the south. He preached against the fatal sins of dishonesty, injustice, bribery, and mistrust. Question, why are sins, all sins, but we'll use the ones they highlighted, dishonesty, injustice, bribery, mistrust, why are these fatal? Why are they fatal? They are fatal, but why are they fatal? it breaks the law and the lawgiver must execute just punishment and give you the death penalty and kill you? Is that why they're fatal? It shows a flaw in the character. Pardon? It shows a flaw in the character. It shows a flaw in the character and what happens when that flaw in character is acted upon and, and it grows in the character and the character develops along those lines? What happens to the being, to the person? We're changed and we're not in harmony with God we're changed. We're not in harmony with God. And if we're not in harmony with God, does that mean he has to then use his power to kill us? No. What's it mean? Men can't live in the, in the uh, life, the presence of God. Ultimately, sin will, cannot live. Like Adam and Eve would have died had, when they sinned if he hadn't interposed. I think I know what you mean with that. I don't quite like the way that's expressed simply because where did sin begin? In God's presence. In God's presence. With Lucifer. So I, I, I know what you mean, but I, I don't want to make it, you know, this, this idea that sin can't exist in God's presence is one of the reasons for the Immaculate Conception Doctrine. The idea that sin can't exist in the presence of divinity. Jesus was divine, so Mary had to be sinless uh, because sin can't exist in God's presence. I don't, I don't agree with that idea. I understand what you mean, though. And I was suggesting the line that sin destroys the sinner. Destroys them, separates them from God, cuts them off from the channels of blessing. Does it make a difference how we understand why sin is fatal? If you believe sin is fatal because man stands under a legal death penalty from God, and if you don't get your sins paid for, he must, in justice, execute you. Or if you believe that sin is actually a terminal condition, if not healed and, and, and remedied, the, the condition itself separates us from God and destroys us. Does it make a difference to you to see it one way or the other? Does one, does one incite fear and anxiety? As soon as Adam and Eve sinned, they ran and hid because they were afraid. Fear is part of the infection of sin. Perfect love casts out all fear. If there's doctrines that you hold that incite fear, there's something wrong with the doctrine. Something wrong. Because as we come to know God, we come to to know him is to love him. And love casts out fear. That's exactly right. So, next paragraph. It says, Yet through the divine inspiration, the prophet saw light in the dark time. With the help of God's perspective, he looked beyond the coming punishment. Micah saw, uh, offered encouraging words and said that the, Lord anointed, the Lord's anointed leader would come from Bethlehem. The Messiah would uh, be the leader who would save Israel and so forth. Um, 
Was God punishing Israel? What do you understand? Yeah, what do you understand? The, the lesson suggests this is punishment. What do you understand the punishment for sin to be? Separation from God. Separation from God, which ultimately the, to the sinner results in what kind of death? Sleep in the grave until resurrection death? Is that what it? So, so the, the wages of sin, the punishment for sin, is suffering uh, and being tortured for alternative. The wages for sin is uh, uh, having a famine come for three and a half years and not being able to offer to your idols. That's the wages for sin. No, all this stuff, they, it's not punishment. It's not punishment. And, and we're going to go through some more, some other texts coming. I'm going to give you some evidence for it. I'm going to suggest to you right now, put this idea in your mind. It's therapeutic intervention. The final end, yes. Yes. Yes, absolutely. Sunday's lesson, first two paragraphs, um, it's, uh, it says, In Micah 1, 1 through 9, the prophet invites the whole earth to witness God's judgment against sinful people. The capital cities of Samaria and Jerusalem are singled out because their leaders failed to be role models of what it means to follow God with undivided hearts. These two cities would be the first to suffer destruction. The thought of, dis- of destructive judgment... There's a destructive judgment. It's warming my heart. Um, produced a real tension in Micah's life because his prophetic call united him with God's purpose. He had no choice but to announce what was coming in the near future. But the prophet also loved the people to whom he belonged and the idea of their captivity drove him to personal lament. Oftentimes, bad news had the most devastating effect on the mind and body of the prophet. Now, let's actually, because they're making a suggestion that Micah 1, 1 through 9 is about... God's judgment and destructive judgment. Let's read Micah 1, 1 through 9. I want you to tell me what you hear. The word of the Lord came to Micah of Morsheth during the reigns of Jotham, Ahaz, Hezekiah, kings of Judah, the vision he saw concerning Samaria and Jerusalem. Hear, O people, all of you, listen, O earth, and all who are in it. The sovereign Lord may witness against you, the Lord from, from his holy temple. Look, the Lord is coming from his dwelling place. He comes down and treads the high places of the earth. The mountains melt beneath him and the valleys split apart like wax before fire. The waters rush, rushing down a slope. All this is because of Jacob's transgression, because of the sins of the house of Israel. What is Jacob's transgression? Is it not Samaria? What is Judah's high place? Is it not Jerusalem? Therefore, I will make Samaria a heap of rubble, a place of planting vineyards. I will pour her stones into the valley and lay bare her foundations. All her idols will be broken into pieces. All her temple gifts will be burned with fire. I will destroy all her images, since she gathered her gifts from the wages of prostitutes as the wages of prostitutes they will again be used. Because of this, and this is now Micah, because of this I, I weep and wail and will go out barefoot and so forth. So Micah is grieving over this. So, do you hear this as destructive judgment? For her wound is incurable, it has come to Judah, it has reached the very gates of my people, even of Jerusalem itself. Yeah, verse 9. Her wound is incurable. Thank you. Did God destroy any of the people? Do you have any evidence or historical account that God acted to destroy these people? 
One of the problems when people read scripture is they read the, the, the description, but they never follow up with, okay, then what happened? What happened next? What actually happened historically? We don't see God destroying the people, do we? Did any of the people get destroyed? Yes, they did. How, what or how did they get destroyed? Did the Babylonians destroy them? Or did unremedied sin destroy them? What ultimately destroyed them? The Babylonians or unremedied sin? And then, what did God say he would destroy? If you read the passage, what did God say he would destroy? Graven images. They're high places. High places in scripture are the places of worship of false idols. So what is he saying he's going to destroy? I'm not, going to destroy, I'm not coming to destroy the people. I'm coming to destroy the high places, the idols, to destroy the false gods, to destroy the lies, to destroy the destructive ideas, to destroy the distorted worship. For what purpose? To punish or to help free the minds of the people so they can find eternal salvation and not be eternally lost. This was not punishment for sin. This was therapeutic divine intervention. This was, this was God's judgment. As a doctor sees a, a, a case with, with, with a person who's sick, they make a judgment, a diagnosis, and then they make a judgment about the best intervention to help the patient. So God was making judgments for sure. But his judgment depends on which law lens. How many times do we have to go back to this law lens? Impose law construct? Like Roman emperor? Like our government? When the judge judges, he has to impose punishment. Natural law construct, laws of health, when the doctor judges, he imposes healing remedies. Which law do you see God through? Which law do you see the Bible through? This is the big question. When we recognize God built his universe to operate on love, and that selfishness and fear brings destruction, then we see God acting to counter selfishness, to counter the lies, to restore love. To, to remove the false God constructs. This is mercy we see described here. This is mercy. But how is it expressed and why is it expressed in such harsh terms? This is what some people, why did, why did he talk this way then? What's it say in Hosea, a contemporary? The people are stubborn like a mule. How can I feed them like lambs in a meadow? They're stubborn like a mule. They don't listen. You ever had a child uh, or, or a relative, somebody who was stubborn and wouldn't listen? They're heading down the, uh, the, the path of self-destruction. Do you ever have to raise your voice, even threaten? Because you really want to hurt them or because you're trying to shake them out of their stubborn, self-imposed, destructive path? If you've ever worked with addicts, addicts often sometimes require an intervention where they're confronted and spoke harsh words to. Even threatened with divorce, threatened with putting out on the street, threatens are given. Because people want to hurt them? Because they're stubborn like mules and they don't listen. Do we see God's grace acting here? Monday's lesson, third paragraph. One of the, one of the constant problems that the Hebrew nation faced was the deception that their special status as God's people, their knowledge of the true God, as opposed to the uh, silliness of pagan idolatry, made them somehow immune to divine retribution. The terrible truth, however, was that it was precisely because they had special status before God that they would be deemed 
that much more guilty for their sins. Time and again, such as in the book of Deuteronomy, the Lord warned them that all the blessings, protection, and prosperity that would be theirs were dependent upon obedience to his commands, such as seen in the caution, only take heed to thyself and keep thy soul diligently, lest thou forget the things which thine eyes have seen, and lest they depart from the heart, thy heart all these days of thy life, but teach them to thy sons and sons' sons. Thoughts. This, this, does this paragraph warm your heart? No. Does it draw you to God? No. Divine retribution. Several points in this, in this to discuss. What, what, when you hear those, that language, what does it connote to you? Throw me some ideas back. When you hear that language, what pops into your mind? Divine retribution. Sodom and Gomorrah. Vengeance. Anything else? Cruelty. Cruelty. Other things that pop into your mind. Divine retribution. Pagan silliness. Pagan silliness. Okay. Enmity between us and the dragon. Enmity between us and the dragon. Interesting. Okay. Does it sound like a God who inflicts punishment? Does it sound arbitrary? In other words, that if God didn't inflict it, it would, it, it, they wouldn't experience it. If God didn't take, the, take time to, to divinely uh, inflict retribution, then they wouldn't, does it sound like that? It makes it sound that way. They mentioned that God warned them over and over in Deuteronomy and that the blessings of God were dependent upon their obedience. This is absolutely true. Absolutely true. Why? Does it mean if you disobey... I will be forced by holiness and righteousness to use my power to execute divine retribution upon you and make you suffer. Does it mean if you disobey, you'll take yourselves out of harmony with me and my methods and my protocols for life and there's only pain, suffering, and death down that path? Obedience, yes, is required for health and for the blessings of God, but but, but why? When it says in the commandment, Honor, the, honor your mother and father that your days might be long upon the earth that the Lord your God gives you. Does it mean if you honor your mom and dad, God uses his divine power to lengthen your telomeres, um, alter your gene expression, reduce inflammation, uh, uh, give you longer life? Is that what it means? Or, in fact, is it a promise on how we're designed? Our, our, where do we learn relationships? Where, where is our, the, the template upon which we, we learn relationships? Parents. Parents. And if we have conflicted relationships, sometimes not of the child's choosing, to be sure, sometimes it's not of the child's choosing, but still, if there's conflicted relationships there, that often affects relationships down, down the road, doesn't it? And if there's conflict in relationships, guess, guess what happens in your brain? Your stress circuitry fires when you're in conflict. You guys know this. When you're in a, in a relationship that's, that's argumenting and, and intention, you're under stress. You can feel it. Well, physiologically, when your stress circuits fire, you actually activate inflammatory cascades in your body. And those inflammatory cascades uh, interfere with insulin signaling, and, and that causes elevations in, in uh, uh, of, um, cholesterol and, and increases your risk of diabetes and obesity and heart attacks and strokes, and, and it actually ages us faster. And, and there's actually a physiologic consequence for having conflicted relationships. This is how God built us. We change based on how we, if we love others though, we have good relationships, activates the anterior cingulate cortex, which calms fear circuitry, reduces inflammatory cascades. We have more health and we live longer. There's many good studies that show this now. Yes? 
Tim, there's an interesting angle on what you're saying about about this whole thing of uh, Micah 1, 1 through 9. In a cross-reference to uh, Jeremiah 26, 18. Can I read? Yeah, go ahead. It says, Micah of Morasheth, who prophesied during the days of King Hezekiah of Judah, said to all the people of Judah, Thus says the Lord of hosts, Zion shall be plowed as a field, Jerusalem shall become a heap of ruins, and the mountain of the house a wooded height. Did King Hezekiah of Judah and all Judah actually put him to death? Did he not fear the Lord and entreat the favor of the Lord, and did not the Lord change his mind about the disaster he had pronounced against them? But we are about to bring great disaster on ourselves. Okay, well said. We're about to bring disaster upon ourselves. Yeah. So the same, the same, you'll find the same. Yes, you had a question, yes? Well, what's about the rebellion of Korah? Of who? Korah, number 16. Yeah. What about it? Well, it says the earth opened, swallowed them up. Moses said, But this you shall know that the Lord has sent me. The Lord will bring about all these things. Yes, I understand, but what, I understand what happened there, but what's your question about it? My question is uh, what happened? I mean, who opened the, who split the, the ground? If you go with the, what the scripture reads, it says that this happened at, 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 at Moses. Word, God's action. Some argue that and say, no, that that wasn't God, that was the devil doing it when God removed his protection. I find that kind of uh, circuitous and not really tenable. I actually think God acted there. Acted there. So what's your question? So then God punished Korah here. No, what's the punishment for sin? What's the punishment for sin? What's going to happen to Korah, Dathan, and Bimer? Where are they right now? Are they eternally wiped out, gone, or will there be a resurrection? And they're coming up in a resurrection. They're coming up in a resurrection. This is not the punishment for sin. It wasn't punishment. It was a therapeutic intervention. Why was it a therapeutic intervention? It was surgery. When a doctor cuts off a gangrene toe, there's a doctor punishing the patient. But their heart, Cora's heart was not with the Lord. That's correct. Cora's heart was not with the Lord. He was not so. And now, when he, he was gangrenous. Yeah. Right now, when he resurrects at the second resurrection, he's going to be the same as. That's correct. By by whose choice will he be the same? By his choice. Okay, so God doesn't do this to him, and ultimately he dies at the end by his own choice, not an infliction from God. What was happening there was God was intervening to keep open the channel for Messiah. As soon as, uh, th- this is something, I, I'd like to get you this idea. As soon as man sinned in Eden, true or false, without Christ, hum- human race is lost. And God announces in Genesis 3 to the serpent that the seed of the woman, Christ, is coming to crush your head, and you're going to bruise his heel. Does Satan have some concept that his hold is not secure? Does he have some idea that the Savior is coming, Jesus is coming? Yes. Do you think he sits back in his lounge chair and waits for 4,000 years for Christ to show up before he gets busy? Or is he at work? What's he at work trying to do? If you're him, strategically, do you want Christ to come or do you want Christ never to come? How could he stop him? There is one way 
to stop him. Would Christ, would God have Christ born into a woman like Jezebel? Would he force a woman against her will to be the, uh, the mother of the Messiah? So he had to have a righteous woman who was willing. Without that, there's no avenue. And so you see Satan working to, to either kill the righteous and, and or harden all the hearts. Was there a time in history when that almost happened? Yes. When, when was that? According to scriptures, a time when there was one righteous man left on the earth and his family. Think about that. The whole earth and there's one righteous man. The avenue through which the Messiah can come is narrowed. Satan has almost got it down. And so after that happened, God then, God then narrowed his playing field. He said, I'm going to work through Abraham. Not the whole world now. I'm going to work through Abraham. And through Abraham's descendant, the Messiah is going to come. Do you think Satan spent special time targeting that, that family? And this gives you insight as to why Sodom and Gomorrah are the five cities. Even without them there, what we're reading here in Micah and the, and the prophets, without those five cities, how close did the children of Israel come to going over the edge? And I think it's my view that God knew those five cities would have been more than, than, um, than the children of Israel could have resisted. No temptation is taking you, but what is common to man? God will not permit you to be tempted more than you're able. And you remember, um, Lot was there to give you some insight. Who went into the grave in Sodom and Gomorrah? If there's 50 righteous, if there's 40 righteous, if there's 30 righteous, if there's 10 righteous, don't deserve, I won't, not even for 10. There weren't even 10 whose hearts were, were accessible to the Holy Spirit. They'd closed their hearts permanently. This is searing the conscious, warping the care. They couldn't be reached. They were gone. Gangrenous. God couldn't do anything for them. And so he excised them. But this isn't punishment for sin because they're coming up in a resurrection. And when they come up in the resurrection at the end of the thousand years, if you read Revelation, what's, what's the situation when that happens? The new Jerusalem's on earth. The righteous are in the city. Christ is in the city. The wicked are raised, and, there's a, and the gates of the New Jerusalem are open, and a period of time goes by where they build implements of war. Now think it through. Okay. They come up out of the grave. Gates are open. There's a period of time goes by. They have freedom still. This is the point. They have freedom. They have choice. But what do they do? They act according to their character. They don't come in to the city. Why do they not come in? Because God has angels with flaming swords barring the way? No record of that. Uh-uh. The reason they don't come in? They're so settled into the lie that they cannot be moved. And I'll give you an example of how strong that could be. Imagine you're uh, a few years back, the FBI and ATF have surrounded the Waco compound. Remember this? You have a loved one inside the Waco compound. And, you're, and, and because your loved one's there, you've come down to plead with your loved one. Your loved one, however, pleads with you and tells you that it's, it's the righteous are in here. It's, this is where God wants you to be. Come on in to the compound. Are you going in? That's how the people outside the city will see the righteous in the city. They'll be so settled into the lie that there's nothing that can be said or done that will actually convince them that they're wrong. And so what I see happening with Cordae and the Byron, another example... God is acting to keep open the channel and to obstruct, and, and Cordathan and Abimer are working against God's plan, and so God put them in timeout. What do I mean by timeout? 
If, and this is an example to my new book. If you had a, uh, five, if you had ten children, five of them were over the age of twenty, and they're just like the people described at the flood, or uh, the, uh, you know, violent all the time, wicked abusers. Uh, no, no, no uh, approach on your part has any impact. In fact, they try to hurt and kill you. And you also have five younger children under the age of ten, and they are so violent, so foul, so wicked that they're actually wanting to molest and abuse your little little kids. Now, if you had the power. We have the technology that you could put them in cryogenic storage. Just, just push the pause button. They're just frozen in time. You don't kill them. You just freeze them in time. And let your other kids grow up safe and, and find to go their own way and then thaw them out to let them finish their life. Would you do that to your kids? Now, have you determined their destiny? They come out of it the same place they were and they're free to continue on with their own choices. This is what God did. He, put, he pushed the pause button. They're coming up out of the grave with their same identities, same individualities, same current of thoughts they went in the grave, and they finished their choices. And they actually finished their choices, in my view, in a situation with a greater opportunity, with more evidence. But they still don't choose the right. And why is that the case? For people like many of us, for people like many of us, who question God's actions in the Old Testament, he brings them up at the end of the thousand years with the new Jerusalem on earth, with the gates open, so he can show you and me See, guys, what I did didn't determine their destiny. Even with all this evidence, they still won't come. There's nothing more I can do. And he handles it in such a way that you can go to Jesus on the walls of the New Jerusalem and put your arm around him and say, it's okay, there's nothing more you could have done. This is what's transpiring. This is what I see happening. But many people get confused for one reason. They confuse this death of sleep from which there is a resurrection with eternal destruction of the individual. The death of sleep can happen for many reasons. It can happen just from age. It can happen from accident. It can happen from an evil person. It can happen from suicide. It can happen from God acting. It can happen from the devil acting. We have all these different ways, but it's a death of sleep. The death that is the wages of sin is the result of unremedied sin destroying the individual in the end. That's the difference. These are great, great points. Thank you for bringing that up. Let's go on um, with our lesson. We're back to the question um, we were talking about. Why, why, why disobedience is, is, uh, uh, brings punishment? Yes. What about the um, probation? You know, we just probation. She says, when does probation close? My view on probation is probation closes when you have persisted in rebellion so long that you have destroyed the faculties God has given you that respond to love and truth. The spirit is the spirit of love and truth. Grieving the spirit is, is, is destroying the faculties that are sensitive to the movements of the spirit. So no amount of truth, no amount of love presented to you has any impact on you anymore. Your probation is closed. God can't reach you anymore. That's closing probation. Yes. That's also called the unpardonable sin. Not because God is unwilling to pardon, but because we're unwilling to be pardoned. So is that before the thousand years, or did that still extend into the thousand years where they still have that opportunity? I'm not sure I understand your question. Every, every, every case will have been decided before the thousand years. Yeah, in my, my understanding. Um, so back to this thing of retribution, the question of, of divine retribution. If you hold the imposed law concept, then what does divine retribution mean? God imposes law like an emperor, then what's retribution mean? 
impose, impose punishment. But if you hold the natural law construct, construct, then what does retribution mean? And before I read any other sources, I really want you to put your thinking caps on because I want you to learn how to think through these questions and come to your own conclusions without another source telling you you're right. And then we'll go to the other sources. Have an idea. So before, so we go there. So God's law, the law of love, the protocol of life is built. What would then retribution be for breaking that law? No, that's not retribution. That's healing. So what's the retribution? The natural result of being out of harmony with God's law, not an infliction by God. So let me read some, some quotes I found quite interesting. This is out of uh, one of the founders of our church. And the, and the view, and I want you, as you hear some of these quotes from, from the founder of our church hundreds, uh, more than 100 and some years ago, notice how far we've drifted. Notice how far we've drifted. This is out of Christ Object Lessons 364. Upon the slothful ser- servant, the sentence was, take therefore the talent from him and give it to him which ha- hath ten talents. Here, uh, here, as in the reward of the faithful worker, is indicated not merely the reward at the final judgment, but the gradual process of retribution in this life. As in the natural, so in the spiritual world. Every power unused will, be, will weaken and decay. Activity is the law of life. Idleness is death. The manifestation of the Spirit is given to every man to, to profit. Uh, to profit him. Uh, employed to bless others, his gifts increase. Shut up to self-serving, they diminish and are finally withdrawn. He who refuses to impart that which he has received will find at last will at last find that he has nothing to give. What do you hear described? An imposition from an external power or a natural process of exercise and and strengthening and not exercising an atrophy. As it is in the physical, so it is in the spiritual. All right, maybe that one's not clear enough. How about this one? Christian Temperance and Bible Hygiene, page 44. Against every transgression of the laws of life, what do you think the laws of life are? Think, think what that means. Think, is we talking imposed law, rules that you have to do, or, and if you don't, there's an imposed, or are we talking the protocols upon which life is built? Okay? Every transgression against the laws of life, nature will utter her protest. She bears abuse as long as she can, but finally the retribution comes. And it falls upon the mental as well as the physical powers. Nor does it end with the transgressor. The effects of his indulgence are seen in his offspring, and thus the evil is passed down from generation to generation. Do you know this is actually proven scientifically now? You've probably heard some of my programs where I've gone into epigenetic modification, the, the, the instructions that sit above the, the DNA that tell the genes how to express, and based on the lifestyle choices you make and the things you believe, you actually are changing how your genes are expressed. And when you have kids, you not only pass on the sequence, you pass on the, the gene expression on how those genes are, are, are expressed. Thus, you're either passing on advantages or disadvantages based on your own choices. This is right out of the commandments. And it's actually true. This is how God built us, to have beings in our image. Well, does that sound like an imposed law, or does that sound like natural consequence? How about this one? Um, Councils on Diet, 161. All who indulge the appetite waste the physical energies and weaken the moral powers. Uh, all who indulge appetite and waste physical energy and weaken moral powers will sooner or later feel the retribution that follows the transgression of physical law. The retribution. Uh, Councils and Diet 161. The retri- Does that sound like an imposed punishment? You bro- hey, you ate, the ro- you ate cheese, and now God's got a little check mark in heaven against you, and he's going to get you. That's not what happens. All right, and here's one more. This is out of Education 147, 148. 
Jacob, in his distress, was not overwhelmed. He had repented. He had endeavored to atone for the wrong to his brother. And when threatened with death through the wrath of Esau, he sought help from God. Yea, yea, he had power over the angel and prevailed. He wept and made supplication. And he blessed him there. Uh, In the power of his might, the forgiven one stood up, no longer the supplanter, but a prince with God. He had gained not merely deliverance from the outraged brother, but deliverance from himself. The power of evil in his own nature was broken. His character was transformed. The same experience is repeated in the history of Jacob's sons, sin working retribution and repentance bearing fruit of righteousness unto life. God does not annul his laws. He does not work contrary to them. The work of sin He does not undo, but he transforms. Wow. Which law are we talking about here? This system of an imposed bunch of rules and you've broken this law, we sinned, we've offended him. His righteous righteous and holy character can't stand it. He's mad and wrathful and he must punish in order to be just. And oh, but praise the Lord, Jesus is there to plead his blood to hold his wrath and anger in check and pay a legal payment that we can have stamped against our account. Wow, that really makes you feel safe and secure in heaven, doesn't it? Or this idea that God built life to operate in harmony with his own nature. And deviations from that are destructive. And the retribution comes out of the actual condition itself. And God is working through Christ. God was in the Son, reconciling the world into himself. He's working through his Son to heal and restore us back into unity and oneness with him. Doesn't that encourage your heart? So, you hear retribution described. It's not inflicted. It's natural. Well, then what about the end of sin and sinners? At the end of the thousand years then, maybe somebody's going to come back, and I've heard these arguments as I've presented this, somebody that holds this punishing model that really wants to see a punishing God will say, yeah, all you said is true in, in our natural world. That's true because God has built nature and run this way. But in the end, sin requires that God punish in order for there to be justice because it's not fair that, that, a, that a college co-ed who really never did anything really too bad but just never accepted Jesus should suffer the same fate as Adolf Hitler. That's just not fair. So God has to punish them to make sure it's, it's fair. This is out of Great Controversy 541. Five, Great Controversy 541. And this is profound, guys. We're gonna, I'm going to be asking you questions as we process through this. God has given to men a declaration of his character and of his method with dealing with sin. What do you think that method is? Well, here's what she quotes. This is out of Exodus 34, 6 and 7. The Lord God, merciful and gracious, long-suffering and abundant in goodness and truth, keeping mercy for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, and that will by no means clear the guilty. Now, if you're thinking, contrast the two laws. How do you hear that passage? The way this traditionally through this law is, yeah, he's gracious, he forgives, he accepts that payment of Jesus so he can forgive you, but if you don't accept it, then he won't clear you, he's going to punish you. Or, the natural law. He's working to heal you, but by no means can he uh, uh, clear the guilty who don't allow healing. There's a consequence. There's a retribution from the condition that comes. How do you hear it? All the wicked he will destroy. The transgressor shall be destroyed together. The end of the wicked shall be cut off. That's Psalms 145.20 and 37.38. Now listen, the power and authority of the divine government will be employed to put down rebellion. Yet, 
all manifestations of retributive, this is retribution, retributive justice will be perfectly consistent with the character of God as merciful, long-suffering, and benevolent. Wow, now that, does that, uh, hopefully there's some like, oh, I gotta think about this. Divine retribution that is merciful, long-suffering, and benevolent. That almost sounds contradictory, doesn't it? How can that work? How can there be divine retribution that's merciful, long-suffering, and benevolent? Let's keep going. What, and which law are you looking at it through? God does not force the will or judgment of any. He takes no pleasure in slavish obedience. He desires that the creatures of his hands shall love him because he is worthy of love. Pause. What does he want from us? What does he want from you? He wants you to love him. Can God have this happen in our hearts by threatening to torture us if we don't? Can't happen. Can God get this by, by legislative fiat? Here's my command, love me. I command you. Hey guys, I command you to love me. Does it work? You can't get it. Can't get it. So legislation doesn't work. He would have them obey him because they have an intelligent appreciation of his wisdom, justice, and benevolence. And all who have a just concept of these qualities will love him because they are drawn toward him in admiration of his attributes. Think that through, guys. Wow. Does the understanding of the law of love, as we've talked about in here, how God built his universe, this beneficence, its giving, the, the protocols of life, does that draw you to him in admiration? Do you see the, that when, when, when man deviated from that and was dying in his terminal condition, that God so loved, he came in, the, in his son to heal and restore, not to punish. He didn't come, as it says in John um, 3.17. I did not send the son to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Do, do you, when you see this product, does it draw you to him in love with this intelligent understanding of him? But how about if we, instead of having just conceptions of God's qualities, we have false ideas and see God as an imposer and punisher? Does it draw you to him in love? You see the problem. Keep going. The principles of kindness, mercy, and love. Remember, this is paragraph is continuing on explaining what retributive justice is. Okay, the principles of kindness, mercy, and love taught and exemplified by our Savior are a transcript of the will and character of God. The principles of of the divine government are in perfect harmony with the Savior's precept: love your enemies. Now, okay, hopefully I'm some more tension. How does divine retribution and love your enemies harmonize? Because the manifestation of divine retribution will be in, in perfect harmony with this love your enemies. That's what she said earlier, right? Where's, how do you see the harmony? God executes justice upon the wicked for the good of the universe and even for the good of those upon whom his judgments are visited. He would make them happy if he could do so in accordance with the laws of his government and the justice of his character. He surrounds them with tokens of love. He grants them a knowledge of his law and and follows them with offers of mercy. But they despise his love, make void his law, and reject his mercy. While constantly receiving his gifts, they dishonor the giver. They hate God because they know that he abhors their sins. The Lord bears long with their perversity, but the decisive hour will will come at last when their destiny is to be decided. He honors the choice of the wicked. Yeah, so who decides their destiny? They do. They do. Listen to this. When their destiny will be decided, will he chain these rebels to a sign? Will he force them to do his will? Those who have chosen Satan as their leader, 
and have been controlled by his power are not prepared to enter the presence of God. Pride, deception, licentiousness, cruelty have become fixed in their characters. What do you hear being described? Is this describing, well, they broke a law, we've got all this stuff, we've got to have, or is it describing a a condition of being that is out of harmony with how God built life to operate? He didn't build life. Life does not operate in selfishness, it operates in love. Great Controversy uh, 541 and 542. Can they enter heaven to dwell forever with those who despised and hated on earth? Truth will never be agreeable to a liar. Meekness will not satisfy satisfy self-esteem and pride. Purity is not acceptable to the corrupt. Disinterested love does not appear attractive to to the selfish. What source of enjoyment could heaven offer to those who are wholly absorbed in earthly and selfish interest? Could those whose lives have been spent in rebellion against God be suddenly transported to heaven and witness the high and holy state of perfection that exists everywhere? Every soul filled with love, every countenance bearing with joy, enrapturing music and melodious strains, rising in honor of God and the Lamb, and ceaseless streams of light flowing from the redeemed, uh, upon the redeemed from the face of him who sits on the throne. Could those whose hearts are filled with hatred of God, of truth and holiness, mingle with the heavenly throng and join their songs of praise? Could they endure the glory of the God and the Lamb? No, no. Why not? Because he, God doesn't want them there? Because God is offended? How dare you come here with such a bad attitude? Go get an attitude adjustment and come back. Or does he want them there? He would love for them to be there. They can't stand to be there. Does God have a rule which requires him to inflict punishment at this point because they weren't baptized in the right ritualistic way? Is this what's being described here? No, it's a, cha- it's a character issue. They're selfish in heart. They're out of harmony with God's design. Years of probation were granted them that they might form characters for heaven, but they have never trained the mind to love purity. They have never learned the language of heaven, and now it is too late. A life of rebellion against God has unfitted them for heaven. Why aren't they there? Because God doesn't want them? Why is a person, and I've had this happen, I've had patients that I've treated with alcohol dependence. And early in the course, we offer rehab. We send them to rehab. They relapse. And sometimes they, they don't want rehab. They refuse. They go home and drink. They come in in liver failure. We treat them. I'm sure most of the docs in here during their residency have had to, had to do this type of thing. And, and, and we get them well. We, we get them, they go home, they drink some more. They come back again. Eventually there comes a point where there's nothing we can do for them. They have persisted so long that the liver is completely gone and they die from liver failure. And, and, and is the doctor happy about that? Is the doctor rejoice? Let's throw a party. You've got one dying today. No. The doctors grieve. They wish they could save them, but you can't save someone against their will. When they're hardened in this way, the condition itself destroys them. It's out of harmony with how life was built. <laughs> has unfitted them for heaven. Its purity, holiness, holiness, and peace would be torture to them. The glory of God would be a consuming fire. They would long to flee from that holy place. They would welcome, they, the wicked, would welcome destruction that they might be hidden from the face of him who died to redeem them. The destiny of the wicked is fixed by their choice, by their own choice. Their exclusion from heaven is voluntary with themselves. They voluntarily don't want to be there. And just and merciful on the part of God, like the waters of the flood, the fires of the great day declare God's verdict that the wicked are incurable. Why are the wicked are incurable? Because God pronounces the verdict and makes them incurable? 
or he pronounces the condition of what actually is. Point beyond which there is no recall. Only God knows that. That's right. We don't read the heart, but we're describing. We're, we're, we're not. We're not. We're not focusing on the wicked here, guys. Hopefully, you understand. We just focused on God. We focused on his actions, his conduct, what, what, what retributive justice looks like. It looks like granting those who don't want to be there the freedom not to be. That's what it looks like. It's not an infliction. Wow. Can you be at peace with that? Can you respect and admire? Can you, or do you need to fear God because he won't force people to be there who don't want to be there? No. Do many Christians today believe that divine retribution is imposed? And that, and that's, we are protected from it by accepting Jesus' payment for our sin. Do many Christians believe this? Yes, they do. Let me get, get where we're going with this. Then are such Christians in danger of believing that because they have accepted Jesus, they are free from divine retribution. Jesus' payment, they are free from divine retribution, i.e. the natural results of living out of harmony with God's design. How about, well, the, the, uh, the ceremonial laws are done away with the cross, I can eat whatever I want. No divine retribution there. Well, if we understand divine retribution as living out of harmony with the laws of health, resulting in increasing disease and early death, nope, that's, then that happens. And this is a grand trick. Yes, the ceremony laws were done away with, of course they were. But the laws of health were not. Laws of health still in operation. You break them, there's a consequence. How about many think that they can watch whatever they want on TV or the internet? Because they've accepted Jesus' payment on their behalf. Sins, past, present, and future have been, been uh, put on Christ. So it doesn't matter. There's no consequence on the neurobiology and the, and the neural circuitry. Of course there is. Huge consequence on the neurobiology and circuitry. How about many think there is no retribution consequence for worshiping an angry or wrathful God? In the book, we show how that worshiping that God construct changes your brain, changes your character. Boy, there's so much to go into. I'm going to hit the high points now. That was just getting through Monday. <laughs> okay. Um. Um, I'm going to jump, I think, to Thursday's lesson. Thursday's lesson. Um, we don't have time to read the two paragraphs. Well, let's, let's try it real quick. Micah's book begins with a description of judgments, um, but it ends with the uh, words of hope. Um, there are people who try to explain away and deny the reality of God's judgments. I wanted to get to that point. Um, and God sends judgments and so forth and punishments and all this other stuff it describes. They're saying there are people who try to explain away God's judgments. Are they talking about universalism? And is that what they're suggesting here? That some people suggest everyone's saved, no one's ever lost? Do you think that's what they're talking about? Or are they talking about theistic evolution, that God created the world, wound it up, let it go, and it runs on its own now? So there is no judgment from God. Is that what they're talking about? Or are they talking about the idea that God's judgments, as they describe them in the Old Testament, aren't punishments, they're therapeutic interventions? Do we deny God's judgments? When we explain them as God's therapeutic interventions, as a judgment of a doctor to heal and restore, is that a denial? Well, for some it is, and they have great animosity towards what we present because they really believe in an imposed law construct, and therefore God has to inflict punishment. It's not for redemption. It's for the purpose of exacting vengeance and making them suffer. That's what some believe. And so they would believe that our presentation denies the judgments of God. What do you think? Are we denying his interventions and judgments? Are we explaining him in a way that's harmony with his character of love and his design for life? 
Well, we're not going to get to the rest of the lesson. I encourage you to get our notes online. Many other points and highlights there that I think you might find interesting. Let's go ahead and end class with prayer. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you so much that you are a God of love. You have built your universe to operate on on the principles of love. And you have longed to heal and restore us, to create in us a new heart, to remove the heart of stone and put in a heart of flesh. We open our hearts to you in love and trust, being so in awe of who you are as you've revealed yourself to be. And we ask for your spirit to come, transform us, take away the fear and the selfishness, and let us be loved, motivated beings who live our lives for you and for others. We pray in your holy name. Amen. Amen.